when Jeff was the one, I'll give him credit. Every time I had that conversation with him, he'd be like, Brian, that's your ego talking. You don't really want that job. You could do that job. You'd be, you know, you'd be great at it, but you don't really want that job. And that to me was really helpful coaching in terms of separating out my ego and what I felt like others would validate and respect from who I truly am and being comfortable with who I truly am. That, that, that took a lot of work, but I'm very grateful for where I am today because I get to bring my whole self to work and do my best work because I know who I am and I'm not trying to be anyone else. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Ryan Rumo is currently Managing Director at Nextplay Ventures and VP and Chief of Staff to the Executive Chairman at LinkedIn. At Nextplay Ventures, Brian works with the founding partner, Jeff Weiner to coach and invest in entrepreneurial leaders building world-class, purpose-driven organizations. Previously, Brian spent over six years working alongside the executive team to manage cross-functional strategic and operational initiatives as Chief of Staff to the CEO of LinkedIn. During this time, he led post-acquisition integration with Microsoft and launched and managed the economic graph team. Previously, Brian was a manager on the business operations team at LinkedIn and a consultant at McKinsey. In this episode, we speak with Brian about the following. How he developed his personal mission statement, which is to compound wisdom, trust, and love. How separating what he should do from what he wanted to do showed him that he didn't want to become a CEO and why investing in long-term professional relationships and managing ego helps you become more comfortable with your career decisions. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. One way that we like to begin our podcast is by asking our guests what their favorite food was growing up. What was that for you? Yeah, first of all, Jay and Angie, thank you so much for inviting me today. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've listened to all the episodes. And in fact, you've interviewed several good friends of mine. And so it's just a privilege to be here. In terms of the food, my favorite food growing up, it's, it may be non-traditional, I guess, uh, coming from an Indian family. But for my brother and me, it was spaghetti with meat sauce and like the craft grated Parmesan cheese from like the green can. And, you know, I guess that that is non-traditional in the sense that when we grew up, we had Indian food every day, uh, pretty much all the meals. And eventually my brother and I, I think I must've been like 10 years old. We kind of like uh, convened and we're like, we got to get out of this Indian food cycle. And so we conspired and we went to my mom, who's this amazing cook and asked her to cook some, you know, American foods like our friends were having. And so she did, and we haven't really looked back since uh, in terms of changing up the diet. So I'm very grateful to my mother for not throwing it back at us and making us cook, but entertaining us and, and nourishing us with such amazing food during those years. 
similar similar to my upbringing brian um always had indian food at home but always wanted not indian food at home and would ask my mom for burgers and pasta and like hot dogs and like anything else um i don't know if you ever experienced this but the when you cook indian food in the house or i guess maybe any other um like pan asian or really any other dish that has a lot of spices in it like the whole house starts smelling and so I, when i would go to school sometimes a lot of my clothes would just smell like my mom's food and i would come home and be like mom i need you to make me pasta like this is enough did you ever did you ever experience something like that for yourself oh, oh, oh yeah it's like when when they got going in the kitchen it's like the first thing is oh man is my room door closed because if it's not closed i'm done and so i always remember whenever they got cooking in there that was the first step is closing every door in the house to to stop that but jay how successful were you in convincing your parents I think, I think growing up was pretty successful. Um, we ended up making a lot of pasta and garlic bread and um, other kinds of food um, on, on, uh, on the point of like closing your door and, and kind of making sure that the smell wouldn't come into your closet. Now I've, it, I'm back at home and I'm using it as a sense of pride that I walk out of the house and I take a whiff out of my shirt. I'm like, yeah, I smell like, <laughs> smell like my mom's food right now. And people are like, what, like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? And so it's funny how it kind of comes back around and, and I'm like, you know what, like, screw it. I'm proud of it now. <laughs> I, I love that. And it's funny. It's the same way for me. It's like, now I love that smell and I love that food and I miss the home cooking. And so it absolutely does come full circle. And it's like, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily appreciate it. But you leave that place and then you miss it. And now we're on different ends of the country. So I don't see them as much, you know, hopefully with the pandemic ending soon or getting to a turning point with the vaccines, we'll be able to see each other again uh, very soon. I'm, I'm de I definitely have Indian food on the menu when they come here. So I'm excited about that. And on that note, Brian, we'd love to hear a little bit about your upbringing in Michigan. I'd assume that there weren't a lot of people who shared your culture or look like you where you grew up. So I'd love for you to talk to us a bit about what that experience is like, what some of the values that were imbued upon you by your parents were, and what that experience was like growing up in the Midwest as an Indian American. Yeah, I mean, your assumptions are spot on, Angie. I think it, and you know, I didn't really appreciate the uniqueness of it until much later, because when I was a child, that's like all I knew growing up. And so, you know, just to kind of tell the story here. So it was actually my uncle Lewis, who is my father's oldest brother, who was the first one to come to the US from India back in 1966. And he actually came for education doing his graduate degree at the University of Detroit. And 15 years after he first arrived is when he sponsored my then-to-be father, that was in 1981, to come to the U.S. And so they all landed in Michigan and congregated in the Detroit area. And so growing up in kind of suburban Detroit, Michigan, like southeastern Michigan, it was unique in the sense that not only were we Indian American, and I remember looking at the yearbook photos just recently and seeing that how I was the only brown kid in the yearbook pages. Um, you know, there's that aspect to it, but there's also the aspect that my parents grew up um, Catholic. So this was also just a, another element of our upbringing. And that's why my name is Brian. My father's name is James and brother's name is Justin, you know, more traditional kind of Catholic or even American uh, or English names. And so that was also a different aspect to it because while there may have been other Indians in the community because of the fact that we didn't have the same religion, the same 
kind of dialect that, that my parents spoke with, with other Indians, like we didn't really have that sense of community as much. And so, you know, I think outside of that, I'm just very grateful for the experience that I had growing up. It was very modest in the sense that, you know, you, you're both familiar with like the whole classic American dream story of coming to the country with very little. And in that case, it was true. You know, they, they have like 10 bucks to their name. It's a new language, totally new environment, seeing snow and experiencing snow for the first time. So I have just a ton of gratitude for my parents and for my uncles and aunts who blazed the trail for all of us in terms of coming here. And I always think about there's this Vietnamese proverb that I, that I really love, which is when eating fruit, remember who planted the tree. And I always remember that because the fruits that I'm now eating and, you know, enjoying, I, I think about all the people who, you know, those family members who planted those trees, you know, 50 some years ago. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of gratitude that I just feel today for all of that. Brian, you mentioned growing up in Michigan, being one of the only Indians uh, growing up in, in the high school that you're in and, and the yearbook only seeing yourself as the only Indian American and also the nuance between like that and then also your name and, and how it, it may come across as quote unquote white passing. How has that impacted your own understanding and, and, and I guess impact of being Indian American growing up in the United States where, you know, the, the name itself doesn't come across as being as Asian American or Indian. Has that impacted you in any way? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it has. And even recently, Jay and Angie, with all of the violence against Asian Americans in this country, it has brought up some of those memories too, of just, you know, my identity as an Asian American. And it, you know, there were these moments where it's like, well, who am I really? For example, I remember thinking to myself, is my goal to try to assimilate as much as possible in this country? Or is my goal to try to retain the sense of culture that my parents have and brought with them? And so there's always like this kind of question in my mind. And I remember my parents when they first came here, like they're just trying to fit in themselves in terms of the language and the culture and just the traditions of this country. And so we erred on the side of just trying to fit in as much as we, we could to survive. And, you know, as one example of how that manifested, my brother and I still to this day don't really speak the language that my parents grew up with uh, and that they still speak to each other today. So that's just an interesting, I think, result of this identity where I try to fit in and I try to assimilate. And, you know, now all these years later, now my brother and I are always trying to be curious with my parents and ask them about traditions and what it was like for them growing up and seeking to really embrace that cultural identity in a way that we, we didn't really try to at the beginning because we had different objectives of, of fitting in. Yeah, it sounds like you transitioned almost from a paradigm of trying so hard to fit in and to assimilate and to belong into now being at a point where you can more so embrace your identity, right? And celebrate the idiosyncrasies of your heritage that make it so special. I love if you could walk us through a bit the, the journey of growing into your identity. 
Because something that I, I remember from when we're briefly chatting before this, Brian, is also that identity isn't something that you've been thinking really critically about until recently. So we'd love if you could share a bit about your journey into how you began thinking about it and now are growing into it. Well, it's very timely, not only because of what's happening in the country, but also my wife and I had our first child last year. And so now we're thinking, okay, how do we make sure she understands, our daughter understands our cultural background? So it has become even more important to us. And so in terms of the journey, one of the things I did back in 2010, this was right after graduating uh, from Michigan with my master's degree, and I knew I was about to go out to the West Coast and start my career. And I had like this window of time where I knew I wanted to spend time with family. And so what I did is I actually set off to produce a documentary where I interviewed all of my family members and I asked them about their stories growing up, their stories about coming to the US for the first time, what that was like, the challenges. And I'm so glad I did that. I did that on my father's side, you know, starting with Uncle Lewis, who I mentioned earlier, but I've also more recently, two years ago, I did that with my mother's side and got all of their stories as well. And so I've actually produced two uh, kind of 60 minute documentaries. And that was just so insightful for me to be able to learn those stories um, from them. And the, the best thing for me is now I know I can share that with my daughter so that when she is a little bit older, she can understand where she came from and all the people who made sacrifices along the way to, you know, for, for her to be alive and for her to be where she is today. And we know how important it is in terms of, you know, the parents you have, those who raise you and where you live in terms of determining the success you have in your life. And so I, I hope that because I've developed those relationships with my family and captured those stories, those memories in a way that can live beyond, you know, uh, them and, 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 you know, their existence here with us that will forever be able to cherish those stories and remember those and appreciate those stories. So that, you know, to me, are just some examples of how I've kind of come along this journey. And now more recently, you know, I think, all of the, the the violence and everything recently against the Asian American community, it's it's caused my wife and me to really think about how we raise our daughter in a way where we encourage her to adopt the values that we had growing up and not lose sight of that. And I think it's really easy out here in Silicon Valley to uh, move at a pace that's very different than in the Midwest where we grew up. And so my wife and I are very intentional about the values that we share with her and that we try to raise her with because we, we know how important that was for, for, for my wife and me. She also grew up in Michigan. And so we want to make sure that our daughter and our family uh, embraces that sense of love and gratitude and compassion as well. To kind of double click a little bit on this mission statement and um, some of these more values that you yourself live by. One thing that I've um, read about yourself is and, and how much you've spoken about mindfulness and karma and impermanence and, and how that shapes your worldview. Does that tie into your own mission statement? Does that tie into your own vision to values? And it, it was really cool to hear the story about you doing the documentary of your family 
and, and it kind of tied in this idea of impermanence there too. Like it, it's making me want to go and, you know, go record a conversation with my grandma or go record a conversation with my, my mom and my dad, just so I can make sure that's recorded because of this idea of impermanence. Yeah, for sure. So I, you know, I, I'll start with the mission statement and then I'll get into the worldview. So my, my mission statement, I've been working with a coach over the last several months to help me get to this point where I feel confident about my mission statement. My mission is, it's pretty simple. It's to compound wisdom, trust, and love. That's it. And so if I just break that down briefly, compound has been a really profound insight for me, the value of compounding. And to me, compounding is simply this, you know, I think we're all familiar with compounding interest and just kind of accruing value over time. But for me, what it means is trying to be 1% better every day in what I choose to do and how I spend my time. And then those three words of wisdom, trust, and love. Wisdom is what I've learned about myself and what I share with others in the world. Trust is about long-term games with long-term people. And this is something that I have come to appreciate the value of more than ever through my role at LinkedIn and working with, with Jeff over the last seven plus years. And then love is it's all about the people and the family and the and, and those you really care most about at the end of the day. So that's how I think about the mission statement. And what I really love at the end of the day is that there's this virtuous cycle with all of those elements in terms of the wisdom that I share with others and that I get back, the trust that I give to others and that I receive, the love that I give to others and that I receive. So to me, that's the mission statement that I just try to think about every day. In terms of the worldview, Jay, you mentioned it, mindfulness, karma, and impermanence. These are, these are three important kind of pillars of how I try to live my life in terms of mindfulness is, I think you're familiar with in terms of just being present, being aware. I think it's very easy to live a, a life of distraction, especially in this day and age and to not pay attention. This is why I think I've actually been I've had some success in my career is because I'm the one in the meeting who's really paying attention to how other people are reacting. And it sounds so simple, but in most cases, you'd be surprised. These small kind of facial gestures that you might miss if you're not paying attention in terms of how someone responds to what you're saying or what, to what someone else is saying. So mindfulness is really important to me. Karma is, is all about like what you put into the world and how that comes back to you. And there's this Buddhist... Uh, saying that I love, which is, if you want to know the past, look at your present. And if you want to know the future, look at the present, which is to say, you know, everything you've done in your life has led you to this moment today for a reason. And everything you're doing now is going to come back to you in the future. All that good that you put into the world will come back to you. And all if you put negative energy into the world, negative energy will come back to you. And so I try to be very intentional about the energy that I put into the world. And then impermanence is this belief that we're all changing all the time and nothing is ever the same. And for me, this is really important in terms of who I am. I think, you know, I think of myself as being in permanent beta. And I think that's a borrowed phrase from Reed Hoffman. You know, we're always changing and I'm always striving to get better every day. And so impermanence is a reminder that if today was a bad day, that's okay. I can do better tomorrow. 
it kind of reminds me a little bit of next play and the mentality that we have around that mantra of not dwelling on anything that didn't go your way, but moving forward. So that's how I think about the mission statement and then the three elements of the worldview. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. I think there's just so much wisdom to draw from that. And I'm really excited to go back and listen to this while we edit. And something that what you're saying is making me think of is actually one of the core tenets of Across the Lines, which is that work and life, who you are professionally and who you are personally really are inextricable, right? And I'm hearing that a lot in what you're saying around how at work and in life, you're trying to curate wisdom, trust, love, thinking about karma, impermanence. There's just a lot of themes that run as undercurrents through the both. What comes to top of mind for me is when we're thinking about some of these values here, I'd be curious to hear when you first started off your career, right? And you've had an amazing career at LinkedIn, working with Jeff directly and just amazing trajectory. When you first started off, what what did some of those values look like? And how do you think they shifted and, and why did they shift to what they are now and how you embody them? Yeah, for sure. I There absolutely has been a transformation. And so for folks who may, who may be less familiar, I... This, back in 2014, I had just been in the LinkedIn business operations team for about a year and a half, almost two years. And I was ready to go to business school and get my MBA. And I had been accepted at Stanford. I paid my deposit, planned out the next two years of my life and was just thrilled about that. And that's when a colleague, Matt Sonnefeld, uh, you know, reached out to me. We were in the hallway, hallway chat. And he's like, Brian, congrats on going to Stanford. Have you spent time with, with Jeff before you leave? And I'm like, Jeff Wiener, the CEO? And he, and he said, yeah, he'd be a great guy to get to know before you go to business school. And I'm like, I'm sure Jeff has better things to do than to meet with me before I leave. And he said, no, 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 just drop him a note and try to get some time before you go. And I said, okay, fine. I'll drop him a note, but I'm going to tell him that you told me to drop him a note so I don't get in any trouble. And so I, I had that first conversation with, with Jeff. He invited me into his office that week, the very same week that I sent him the note. And we, we had this amazing conversation. This is February of 2014. And in classic Jeff fashion, he, you know, I think was asking me the right questions in terms of why am I going to business school? Why do I need an MBA? Why am I leaving LinkedIn? And we realized there was just really a great opportunity to potentially work together. He was looking for a chief of staff at that time. The one he had and was working with was leaving after many years at LinkedIn. And two weeks later, he offered me the role and I realized I could always go to business school later. But working with Jeff is a once in a lifetime opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So I said, yes. And I remember being in his office. It was his birthday that day. And I remember having the Stanford uh, admissions letter. And I remember crumbling that up with him and throwing it into the recycling bin and just saying, I'm all in. Let's do this. And the way we talked about, and Angie, this will get to your point about how the values have transformed, is we talked about this role being 18 months six months to do it, six months to learn it, and six months to find and train a replacement. And I think that was his way of buying some option value in case I didn't work out. He'd have a pretty easy out on me. But after the first six months, I think it was going well. And he's like, let's just make an even two years in the role. During those first two years, I will tell you, I had the itch so many times. And I'll tell you why. In terms of this itch to think about what's next. I, I remember right after getting this role, I, as, as chief of staff, I was in the LinkedIn cafeteria and I remember running into one of our engineering leaders and he said to me, Brian, congrats on the role. You know, the cool thing about this role is 
success is not determined by what you accomplish in this rule. Success is determined by the rule you get after this rule. And I thought that was so interesting. And I remember then having that on my mind all the time. Okay, what's the rule after the rule? I got to be thinking about my next play. And I remember I was like, you know, six months, 12 months, you know, year and a half into this chief of staff tour of duty. And I remember always thinking and talking to Jeff about what's next. And the thing that has changed for me from a values perspective is coming to appreciate what can accrue over time when you invest in a relationship, when you play the long-term game with people you really respect, with people you really trust, the people you really enjoy working with. And so if I could go back and I think about those values from seven years ago, eight years ago, they're different in the sense that now I just take a much longer term view on the relationships that I have, on the people I work with. And I think because I do that, I'm able to achieve more and we're able to go much deeper with each other. We have this shorthand and how we communicate with each other. And it's not just Jeff, but it's all the people I try to work with. It's just think about this as a long-term relationship and think about what can be unlocked when you think that way. And you'll see that Angie in terms of the mission statement I talk about of compounding wisdom, trust, and love it's in there. Uh, you'll see that in terms of, you know, some of the values that I talk about from in terms of like how I think about trust as a value and just like long-term relationships. And so to me, that has been like one of the biggest shifts that I've had is just realizing what is possible when you play long-term games and when you, when you invest in long-term relationships and just try to manage the ego, which we all have in terms of chasing titles or chasing things that we think others will approve of or you know, respect you for, and just being comfortable in your own skin with the decisions you're making. I'm reflecting a lot on this right now uh, for my own life, Brian, you know, you should be thinking about your next play, but it also kind of leads to a weird counterintuitive mental angst that you're always trying to look for something a little bit better and maybe not fully being present, focusing on the opportunity that you have in front of you, appreciating that opportunity and playing a long game with the people that you surround yourself with. I'm curious, would you have, I guess, told yourself that early in your career, or do you think that's something that has only benefited you more now or in the past, like, like five to six, like 10 years of your career? Or do you, do you find that it's a more nuanced perspective than that? It's absolutely easy for me to say this looking back and seeing how it has evolved. If I were to go back in time and try to simplify things, and this is for me, by the way, like it's all about the people I work with. And I've come to realize this. I'm not the type of person who was born with like a passion for, you know, a, a particular mission or a problem statement. Like I, I'm, I'm more of a generalist in terms of my approach and like my skill set and how I think about my own career. I've got a very generalist approach to things. And so for me, the most important thing is the right people. And so when it comes to the right people, it's about, you know, Jeff has the Venn diagram, which I remember we doodled back in August of 2014. I'll never forget that after that meeting, the Venn diagram of the people we want to work with. Dream big, get shit done, know how to have fun. And I think the people who I want to work with are right in the center of that Venn diagram. And I think 
if I could have known that from earlier in my career, I would have been more intentional about the people I spend time with and I choose to surround myself with because they are going to have such a profound impact on you on, you know, when you're early in your career. And so for me, like I would absolutely would have um, made that point earlier in my career, but it is absolutely easy for someone like me to say that because I can look back and, and, you know, with hindsight and say, yes, that was the right decision. I think at the end of the day, you've got to trust your gut. That's how I made the decision to take this role. And that's how I've made the decision to stay in the role. And at the end of the day, everyone's gut will tell them something else, but I, my ultimate piece of advice there is just to trust your instinct because it already knows the answer. And it's just a matter about revealing what your instinct is trying to tell you. A bit of a provocative question here. So the archetype of leadership in corporate America, at least, is very much so the person who's the passionate, visionary, loudest person in the room being the table kind of person. And something that we've discussed with some of our guests Robbie Kwok comes to mind, actually, when when I'm thinking about this, is this idea of gaining a lot more fulfillment from being a supporting player in the background who makes sure that shit gets done and makes sure that other people can shine. And it's, it's a very interesting tension, you know, of trying to unseat the archetype of what leadership looks like. But simultaneously, what if you draw fulfillment in your career from a different form of leadership. I'd love to, to get your reaction to that. It's, it's fascinating, Angie, because I used to think I would become a CEO. I used to think that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get up there and I wanted to lead the team. And I remember thinking, I would become one because that's the thing that I should do. I'm an ambitious person. I feel like I can do it and I feel like I would be good at it. So I always thought that that's the kind of person I would be is that, is that kind of leader, the one who is the louder one at the table and the one who is setting the vision and inspiring and everything a leader does. For me, it was a process and a journey in trying to figure out what really matters to me. I think it's very, it was very easy for me to be tempted by this notion of becoming a leader because it is the thing to do. And it is the thing that an ambitious person should do. And it was only after many, many reflections and conversations with mentors and friends and family members where I had to come to grips with who I am and, and what kind of person I am in terms of what I really enjoy doing. So I separated what I could do and what I should do with what do I want to do. And when I did that exercise, it actually aligned much more with Robbie in the sense of what I really enjoy doing is being more behind the scenes. I don't need to be out there and getting all the credit or the one whose face is on everything. I am perfectly happy playing the role I know I'm playing and that I know I'm capable of playing and creating value in a way that is meaningful to me, is meaningful to the people I work with and being comfortable that that is enough for me. It it was a process for sure. That's where, by the way, going back to that story of working with Jeff over the last seven years and all these moments where I almost thought I would go and do something else, it was always because 
when I thought about doing something else, it was that should. Oh, I should be a PM or I should go be leading this team. Not because I really wanted to. And Jeff was the one, I'll give him credit. Every time I had that conversation with him, he'd be like, Brian, that's your ego talking. You don't really want that job. You could do that job. You'd be, you know, you'd be great at it, but you don't really want that job. And that to me was really helpful coaching in terms of separating out my ego and what I felt like others would validate and respect from who I truly am and being comfortable with who I truly am. That, that, that took a lot of work, but I'm very grateful for where I am today because I get to bring my whole self to work and do my best work because I know who I am and I'm not trying to be anyone else. I'm just trying to be me. And that's the best person to try to be. I think, I think a lot of this is the, the idea that you mentioned earlier about the abundance mindset versus the scarcity mindset. If you see someone being successful and they're doing a really good job in a scarcity mindset, you'll go to the insecurities of your mind of thinking that you should have been in that position or why didn't you do that? Or, or you know, how are they better than you? If you switch that to an abundance mindset, then you can appreciate them and, and share with them why they've done is such a, what they've done is such a good job and, and support them and, and, and be there for them. And, and I think that paradoxically ends up leading to more success for yes. you because yeah. things will keep coming back around. That's why your principle of karma is, is very um, front and center, right? So yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Totally. Spot on. I love how you brought that back to karma as well. I was going to go there too. It, it all comes back. So just put out good stuff, put out the good, good vibes, good energy, and it'll come back to you. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.